you know, there's a danger of singing songs like that. You actually got to mean it. Are you really willing to surrender all? Are you willing to give up everything so that you might have everything? That's what we'll consider this morning in our passage through Matthew's gospel. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to the book of Matthew? The book of Matthew. We've been walking through this book for the better part of two years now, piece by piece. And this morning we find ourselves closing out the book, uh, the chapter of Matthew 19. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. If you're using one of the pew Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 824. And if you don't have a Bible for your own, feel free to take that Bible with you as our gift to you. Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30 this morning. We read, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake or for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
but many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. It's a familiar passage, but it's striking, isn't it? Passage we need in our day and need to be reminded of its main theme, its main point, especially in a day of so much affluence and so much focus on what we can do. Jesus reminds all of us in this passage of of what is needed for eternal life. So here's what I think is the main point of this passage, the main point of the sermon this morning. Good works and great wealth won't earn you eternal life, but only clinging to Christ. Good works and great wealth won't earn you eternal life, but only clinging to Christ. As we walk through this passage, we'll notice two things needed for eternal life be the two points of our sermon. Number one, we must have humble faith. Have humble faith. We see that in verses 13 through 15. And number two, hold Christ as more valuable than everything. Hold Christ as more valuable than everything. We see that in verses 16 through 30. So have humble faith and hold Christ as more valuable than everything. Point number one, have humble faith. I think that's the idea behind the the scene we see in verses 13 through 15 as children are brought to Jesus. It's the second time in two chapters we've seen these little ones around the great Jesus. Back in chapter 18, where we were a few weeks ago, you remember that as the disciples argued about who was the greatest among them, Jesus brought a little child and placed him in their midst to show what kind of people would enter his his kingdom. People who were humble and dependent like little children. Here again, we see little children brought up and brought to Jesus. It's a striking contrast from the episode surrounding it. I mean, the passage before this, where we were last week, had the religious leader Pharisees coming to Jesus. The passage after this one, starting in verse 16, which we'll go to shortly, has a rich young ruler coming to Jesus. Both parties have some status, some recognition, something seemingly to boast about. They are the great ones. They both approach Jesus, yet leave no better off than when they came. But here... Sandwiched in between those scenes is an illustration of little children. The gospel writer Luke calls them infants, brought to Jesus so that he might lay hands on them and pray for them. Who brought them? Well, probably their parents. I think it shows a vital aspect of good parenting. A good parenting understands children's physical needs. They need to be fed, they need to be clothed, they need to be washed, they need to be cared for. A good parenting understands children's intellectual needs. 
They need to be challenged. They need to be engaged. Their brains stimulated. And good parenting understands children's spiritual needs. They need to be taught spiritual truths, brought into contact with spiritual people, exposed to the spiritual power of prayer. We don't read anything here about the the parents of these children, exactly what they believed about Jesus. But they seemingly knew enough about him to believe that he was a great spiritual man with great spiritual power and that their children needed prayer from him. I mean, if, if all the stories were true, that he had power just in the hem of his garments, then how much more power in his lips if he pleaded to the Lord Almighty in heaven? And so they grab their little ones in their arms. They strap their little ones on their backs. They lead their little ones by their hands to Jesus. Say, that's what we're called to do as parents. Bring our little ones to Jesus. Now, we know we can't accomplish salvation for anyone, our kids included. But we can acclimate them well to the one who can save them. We can introduce them to him at an early age. So bring your children to church. I love singing. I love seeing Daniel singing some kind of song back there when we were singing, right? I love hearing Delano's kids screaming out when daddy or mommy read scripture. Bring your kids to, ch- to church. Read the Bible to them. Pray for them. Build in patterns and routines teaching them what, or rather who, is most important in your life and ought to be most important in theirs. These parents brought their kids to Christ. But the disciples, the end of verse 13 tells us, rebuked them, scolded them. Why? We're not told explicitly. But perhaps they thought Jesus was too important to be bothered with blessing these little minions. Had more pressing things to be doing than wasting his time with these worthless infants. I mean, sure, they were cute and cuddly, but but they had nothing to offer. No ministry they could do. No skill set that Jesus could use to further his mission. You know, that, that's how we can sometimes be. Assigning value to people based on what they can offer us. And, and so we prioritize talking to and spending time with people who have something they can give us. From something as simple as stimulating conversations to something more beneficial like job or ministry opportunities. We can move near and network with folks we think will add to our net worth. And we push others, seemingly less important, less influential, away. Does that describe your relationships on your job? Or in your extended family? Does that mark your interactions here after service on Sundays? The apostles here have suddenly turned into bouncers to keep babies away from Jesus. And blasting parents, perhaps lined up for miles, children in tow. What a foolish thing for y'all to show up here. 
the master has more crucial matters to tend to. But, but notice Jesus' response when he learns about the situation. He rebukes as well. Not the people, but the apostles. Don't hinder them. Let the little children come to me. Jesus' heart is a lot wider than the disciples thought. A lot wider than we think. I mean, what picture is it that you have of Jesus? Is it that he's too busy for us? He, he has better and bigger things to deal with than our little issues? That if we did come to him, that he'd be prickly and irritable, short and dismissive. Well, friends, where do we get that picture of Jesus? It's certainly not from the Bible. Jesus is welcoming, and happily so, even to the people at the bottom of the social status pole like babies. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, welcoming all these babies to spend time with him, bouncing them in his arms, having them stare in his eyes, squeeze his finger, pull at his beard, drool on his shoulder, make strained faces even as they pooped on his lap. Yes, Jesus is God, but he's God become man. He took on a body, came near to us, and lived as a real human to draw us near to him. We need to push out of our minds a distant Jesus, a detached Jesus, and put into our minds a delighted Jesus, delighted to spend time with and be near the little ones who have seemingly nothing to offer but messiness, like babies, like us. You see, verses 13 and 15 aren't so much about literal children, but about the heart and attitude that must mark those who truly belong to Jesus. We saw that back in chapter 18, and we see that here. Notice Jesus says in verse 14, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such, such people as them, such people who are humble and dependent upon me like children are on their parents, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Such people who cling to Jesus like babies cling to parents will inherit and enter God's kingdom, will have eternal life. Friends, see here Jesus' heart for the helpless, for the little ones. Little children here today, if you are three or five or seven or nine, listen, listen to Jesus' heart for you. Jesus loves you and wants to be near you. Keep learning about him. And the more you learn and know about him, keep trusting him. Turn from your sins. Even the things that you think aren't that bad are sins against God. Turn from those and put your trust in Jesus. We're here to help you do that as a church. Church, 
one very practical way, but powerful way, that we can help these little ones know and trust Jesus is by serving in the nursery. Oh, I know, I know nursery isn't your calling, but pointing these little ones to Jesus is. That's what Jesus says. That's what we've pledged to do in our church covenant, to raise up those in our care in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so while it's not the only way, ministering in the nursery is a way to do that. And it's not just service for sisters. Men, godly, strong, I'm gifted to teach and preach. Men, yes, you can serve in the nursery. Read a story about Jesus to a little one. Sing a song about Jesus to another. Show the sacrificial service of Jesus to another by wiping his nose or, even worse, his bottom. Why? Because you love him or her. And because you love Jesus more and want them to know his love. Thank you for those who faithfully served in the nursery over the years. And guess what? There's still plenty of opportunity to still do that. Talk to Sorrell or Zandra about ways to serve our church in that way. Thank you for others who, who've shown that care for, for little ones in other ways. Being present at, at little ones' birthday parties or showing up at basketball games or talking with them on Sunday mornings. I see that happening all the time. Showing them that they matter, that you care, and that through your care, you're showing that Jesus cares for them. For all of us, we need to see the kind of people that Jesus gladly welcomes. It's not folks who have it all together, who have something they can offer Jesus. It's folks who humbly admit they have zero to give but themselves. We echo with the old hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. To, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. To such have interest into that eternal kingdom who admit having nothing to bring but simply cling to Christ. That's the kind of humble faith we all need. But, but there's a second thing we see needed for eternal life in this passage, and it's that we, we, we need to hold Christ as more valuable than everything. These are our point number two. Hold Christ as more valuable than everything. And we see here two test cases, one negative and one positive. The rich man in verses 16 through 22, and the disciples in verses 23 through 30. First, we see this encounter between a rich man and Jesus. <coughs> Matthew presents us with a strong contrast here between what we've just seen in verses 13 and 15 with babies being brought to Jesus who had nothing to offer, to here, starting in verse 16, a man approach, approaches Jesus with seemingly everything to offer. 
He comes in verse 16 and asks, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, his subject matter is on point. He's asking about eternal life. Friends, that's the most important subject matter in all the world. How can you live eternally? While we spend bunches of, of dollars and hours trying to slow the baldness and the wrinkles and the aging that, that shows that our time on earth is winding down, we ought to spend much more time thinking about what's next, what's after this life. And friends, there is an afterlife. That's what the Bible teaches. After you die, you don't simply disintegrate into nothing. Neither do you reincarnate and come back as something else. Rather, you spend eternity somewhere, either in eternal torment, in hell, and eternal death, or in eternal bliss, in the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord, and eternal life. The two are so drastically different, the one so heinous and the other so wonderful that we ought to consider where it, will, where it is that we will be. But friends, be honest. When you woke up today, did you think about where you'd spend eternity? Before you take an action, before you make a decision, do you think of the eternal repercussions of it? That this young man, verse 22 tells us he's young, is thinking about eternity is a good thing. Maybe especially impressive because he's young. And because youthfulness tempts us to think that life will last forever. Tomorrow you'll change. Tomorrow you'll turn. Tomorrow is for Jesus, but today is for me to enjoy life to the fullest. YOLO, baby. You only live once. Uh, That's the kind of of secret sauce that drives much of the advertisements and commercials we see. What's most important is the here and now. And, And so you should have all that you desire, all that you see, all that will bring you pleasure here and now, with no thought of eternity. But no, this young man has his sights set on eternity. He's got the right subject matter, but the wrong plan of action. He wants to know about eternal life, but thinks there's something he can do to earn it. What must I do to have eternal life, he asks. His assumption is that human effort always wins what it's after. Perhaps life had fed into that narrative. Maybe that's how he got rich at a young age in the first place. His cunning or intelligence or invention or enterprise had brought about riches. Or perhaps he grew up in a wealthy home where he always had. And what he didn't have but wanted, he could always get. In any case, his mindset matches many of ours thinking that by hard work, we can accomplish anything. Friends, that's true with a lot of things. But when it comes to salvation, our efforts earn us nothing. The young man hasn't realized that yet. 
He just wants Jesus to name a deed, any good deed. Nothing's too beyond him. Tell him what good deed he must do to have eternal life, to be saved, and he's sure that he can do it. But Jesus responds, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. We see Jesus here do as he does so often. He questions the questioner and often turns the question on his head. Jesus questions the young man's idea that he's even able to do a good thing. Where do you get your concept of good from? Why are you asking about what you can do that is good? You do good based on whose standards? On what criteria? There is only one who is good, and it is not you. It's God. Now, some here have used this verse or Mark and Luke's account of it to supposedly show that Jesus didn't think of himself as God. Not even he, they say, thinks that he's good. And so he disqualifies himself as God. That's, that's simply a, a bad way to, to read Jesus' words here. It fails to understand that Jesus here is not disclaiming who he is, but rather disclaiming who this man thinks that he is. Good enough to do good works. God alone is good. And God alone is the determiner of good. Just notice where Jesus points the man to. The law. Why? Because the law is the expression of God's goodness, of his perfect and holy character. And all the do-nots in the law are not there simply to restrict us, but to help us carry out the calling for which we were created, to reflect God's character. You are not to do these things because God does not do these things. Jesus takes this young man to, to God's objective standard of good, his word. You notice how much of a pattern that is for Jesus? We saw it last week. The Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce, and Jesus took them to God's word. Have you not read what God said in Genesis? Here, the young man asked what good deed he can do for eternal life, and Jesus takes him to God's word, to his good commandments in Exodus. Jesus used his Bible, and not just for corporate worship or for quiet times, but for all times. In everyday life, in conversations and confrontations, Jesus leaned on his Bible. And saints, so should we. Trust that the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness. Don't leave this book closed during the week. Read it, study it, apply it, obey it, pray it. We aim to be a church to, to equip you to do all those things well. And so that's why we don't just have a sermon on Sunday mornings. We also have a Wednesday night Bible study. We walk through the scriptures verse by verse by verse. That's why we have a Sunday evening prayer service like tonight. Come join us. 
where we pray through a passage of the Bible, verse by verse by verse. We want to use and know and treasure this book like Jesus uses and knows and treasures this book. Jesus tells this young man, if you want to have life, keep the commandments of God. He doesn't say it to teach him that he can actually earn his way to to heaven. But again, because the law is the expression of God's goodness. And so to talk about doing good of any sort, you have to start with God's standard of good. Well, which one is the man asked? (laughs) As if there was a pick and choose option. James 2 verse 10 says, if you break one commandment, you've broken all of them. In any case, Jesus obliges and gives him just a few of the Ten Commandments that God gave in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not murder, the Sixth Commandment. You shall not commit adultery, the Seventh Commandment. You shall not steal, the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness, the Ninth Commandment. Honor your father and your mother, the Fifth Commandment. And then lastly, to sum up all the commandments found in the second table of the law, from commandments 5 through 10, the the commandments that deal with interpersonal relationships with others, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And just as soon as Jesus finishes the list, before even pausing to consider the depth of what Jesus just said, of what God demands, The young man loudly exclaims in verse 20, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? And now before we jump into critique, has he really kept all those? Let's just take his statement at face value. And just see here something that's really important. This man has a lot of money. We read that in a few verses. In in verse 22, he has great possessions. And he has great moral character. I think he really thinks, I have not lived a bad life. I've done a lot of good to a lot of people, and consciously so, based on what God commands. I've actively read and followed the commandments. But with all that money and all that moral excellence, he still subjectively knows he lacks something. He knows that he still lacks salvation. Friends, let me tell you, money won't get you saved. Ministry won't get you saved. The Lord has designed it so that nothing will fill that gaping gap between the distance of us and a holy God. You know that That's a good thing, to sense that gap, to recognize it. But please don't try to fill that gap with more of what you can do, more of what you can achieve. Understand the lack of the thing. It's what we've done that's created the gap. We have all rebelled against a good and a holy God. We've sinned against him as if he... The creator of the world was a nobody. We turned our backs on God to live the way we want to live without him over us. And as a result, what we've actually earned is God's just condemnation. 
All of us are separated from God because of our sin, and all of us are destined to an eternity in hell without him. And no amount of righteous deeds, no amount of riches can ever change that. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. This young man's presence before Jesus is proof. I mean, he, he had money before he came to Jesus. And he had this record of, of seemingly keeping the law before he came to Jesus. And yet he still came because he had no assurance of salvation. He came wanting to know how he could have it. And here we are midway through the encounter and he's no better off. His rehearsal of all the righteous deeds and ways of living that he's done have not assured him one bit that he's okay. Have not gained him any entrance into heaven at all. Instead, he all the more agonizingly feels that he still lacks something. Still? His goodness wasn't good enough. Were we to break down his assertion that he'd kept the commandments that Jesus stated, we'd likely find a mere surface obedience. Maybe he hadn't killed, hadn't robbed nobody, hadn't slept with another man's wife. But remember back in chapter 5, Jesus gave us the law's requirement, not just at the surface level, but at the heart level. You may not have physically killed. Great. But have you hated? Well, then you've committed murder in your heart. You may not have physically committed adultery. Wonderful. But have you lusted after another woman? Well, then you've committed adultery in your heart. It's why all our assumptions that we're good people, because we haven't killed nobody or done anything really heinous, why they all fall short. And it's why, if we're really honest, when people ask, do you think you're going to heaven and why? That that yes, because I'm a good person response, that comes out so quickly out of our lips, actually masks a heart that cries out with this young man here, I lack assurance of salvation at all. I really don't think I'm going to heaven. But Jesus wants you there. He wants you and I with him. Again, that's why he came. That's why he's engaged in this conversation with this man. What does this young man lack? Perfection. That's God's standard. And not goodness on our own scale, but absolute perfection. That's how he created us. That's how he called us to live under him. And the fact that none of us have lived perfect lives and that now none of us can have not changed God's perfect requirement at all. Amen. Jesus says in verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Ah, oh, there we go. Finally, a work to do. A good deed to seal salvation. Well, no. Verse 21 isn't so much about work, but about worth. 
How valuable is salvation for this man? And more than that, how valuable is his Savior to him? Go and sell all he has and give to the poor is but a precondition to unburden himself of all that's holding him back from what he really needs to have salvation. Jesus Christ. The emphasis is not so much on go and sell and give to the poor. The emphasis is on come, follow me. Jesus is testing this man's treasures, what he most values. What do we know so far? He values his adherence to the law. He came thinking he could do any good thing Jesus asked to earn his salvation. He'd been doing good all his life, he thought. What's one more thing? And Jesus pointed him to the law. And he explained that he kept all the law. He treasured his record of of law keeping. But would he treasure the one the law pointed to? Jesus first pointed him to the law, follow the commandments, but then he pointed him to himself, follow me. You see, that's the law's purpose. The Apostle Paul says it's a tutor meant to lead us to Christ. So are you lingering on your obedience to the law? Well, great. Well, go to where the law is supposed to lead you to. Right? You don't follow the line, right? You want the actual source of the well, right? Where the water comes from, where the life comes from. He was valuing his obedience to the law. The law was supposed to be meant to lead him to Jesus. But this man's high estimation of, of himself and his moral performance would not allow the law to do its work to show that we cannot keep it perfectly and to lead us to the only one who has for us, the Lord Jesus, the one who gives his perfect record for us so that we might stand before God blameless, faultless before the throne we sang earlier. Jesus is not this man's treasure. He treasures his adherence to the law, and he treasures his own treasures, his own riches. He couldn't give up everything to follow Jesus. I mean, all I possess? Sell all I possess and give to the poor? I mean, I have great possessions. Yes, but you don't have the greatest possession. You're seeking it, eternal life, and you've admitted that you lack it but you can have it. How? By having me. By having me, Jesus says. I am the only way to eternal life. Not what you can do, but who I am and what I have come to do to offer salvation through my life and through my death for you. Jesus gives the man what he asked for, an answer to his question. What must I do to have eternal life, he asked in verse 16. Jesus responds point blank in verse 21, follow me. That is the only way. But it's a way too narrow for this man to travel. Too hard for him to to climb. 
Verse 22 says, instead of him, the one seemingly so eager, so desirous to have eternal life, instead of him heading to, to what he had to, heeding to what he had to do to, to have eternal life, to follow Jesus, instead he went away. He walked away from Jesus. Sorrowful, he, he didn't do it gladly. He wasn't boasting, I'm leaving Jesus. He, he did it sorrowfully, but he still left the Lord and left eternal life behind. Why? Because he had great possessions. Possessions that proved greater than salvation to him. Greater than the Savior to him. He said he kept all the commandments, the ones Jesus listed, and, and probably all ten if Jesus asked more. But in Jesus' call to forsake all his stuff for him, he showed that he hadn't even kept the first commandment. To have no other gods beside the Lord God. This man certainly wouldn't claim to worship anyone but God. But in putting his possessions above Jesus, he showed what his functional ruler was. What his functional God was. What he truly treasured and, and valued. He placed his possessions on a higher pedestal than God. Trusted and cherished in them more than in God. This story should cause us all to examine our priorities and where our loyalties lie. With our lips, we may say that God is our everything. We want him more than anything. But with our lives, with our actions, what is it that we say? And we recognize the dangers of a divided heart. One that wants some of Jesus and what he can give, but some of this world, what this world can offer us as well. To press in the dangers and make them even more evident if, if we've missed them, Jesus turns his disciples in verse 23. And notice they're always around him, within an earshot of Jesus interacting with folks. I mean, so much of Jesus' discipling them is simply in having them with him, seeing him live and respond to situations. Seeing him use his Bible in discussions. Seeing him call people to hard things and then turn and explain those things to them more clearly. I think it's a, a good model for us. Discipleship doesn't just look like a Bible study at a set time, in a set place, for a set number of dates. It's more a lifestyle opening up yourself to folks so they can see how you live and respond to circumstances and challenges and where your foundation is. Thanks, don't overlook that as you live with your spouse or your children or your parents. Think of how you might be discipling those who are already around you all the time. And think about how you might invite others in our church to be more around you and more involved in your life. So you can show them how you live, imperfectly, but intentionally, following Jesus so that you might help them do the same. Amen. Jesus turns to his disciples here to, to teach them a lesson from his encounter with this rich man. Namely, that it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard? Well, really, it's impossible. That's what Jesus means to show with the illustration in verse 24. 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some have tried to lessen the impact of Jesus' words here and, and say that the eye of a needle refers to a specific gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle that camels had to stoop down to to, to go into. Now, the problem is there's no, absolutely no historical evidence that such a gate ever existed. No, the point of Jesus' illustration in using a camel, which was the largest animal in Palestine, and the eye of a needle, yes, that small little hole on the tip of a sewing needle, is to show that there is no way possible for that large animal to go through that small hole. In the same way, there is no way possible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, to have eternal life. Salvation is not just hard to accomplish, it is impossible for us to accomplish. The statement shocks his disciples. They say in verse 25, well, who then can be saved if not the wealthy? Now, they were good Jews. They, they didn't think that you could buy your way into heaven to earn God's favor. But they held the popular belief among Jewish people that money represented that you were already in God's good favor. It's the belief that many in our day hold, where God's blessing is supposedly most seen in your having money. So rappers and actors make loads of money producing and promoting things totally opposed to God. Nonetheless, they attribute their financial success to God. Man, God, just keep blessing me. And many pastors tell many parishioners that the sign of God's good favor upon them can be seen in their financial fortunes. But friends, Jesus takes a total opposite view. Riches don't represent God's favor on you. Jesus was a poor man. He had no place to lay his head. Riches instead often, not always, but often turn your heart further from God. They entangle and smother your heart so that you desire money more than God, the gift more than the giver. Jesus said earlier in this book, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's impossible. And now I know that the tendency for us here is to understand this passage, uh, the warning of the spiritual dangers of riches, to, to apply it only to the super rich. So, so you can explain why many celebrities, why many of the world's wealthiest people are not Christians, often are openly opposed to Christianity. I mean, look at what money has done to them. They love their wealth more than Jesus. But you know, rich is a pretty relative term. For a great population of the world, you and I sitting here this morning with our salaries and our resources and our standards of living are pretty rich. Amen. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty and stop going to Starbucks and getting your petties and manis, right? Keep doing that. But it is to say 
that we need to be careful about the things we amass or desire and the dangers those things might have on our souls. So friends, you might really, 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 really want that promotion at work and the salary that goes along with it with all the perks. But at what expense? Maybe the Lord is keeping you from it because of what it might do to your heart. Maybe you can't handle it. And maybe it's the Lord's kindness to keep you from it so he can keep you in him. You see, desiring to be rich and delighting in our riches drowns out our desires for the Lord. It makes it harder, not easier, to see our need for him. To see him, not our stuff, as our greatest treasure. And prosperity preachers are making it harder for people to get to heaven, not easier. Right? For the wealthy to rightly see God as all they truly need and be saved is impossible. Friends, it's the same for us. We cannot see how much we need Jesus and how valuable he is and go to him for help on our own. It is impossible for this hope. Jesus says in verse 27, with God, all things are possible. God is able to open eyes, once blinded to his glory, to see the beauty and worth of his son. God is able to turn hearts once set only on self and set their affections on Jesus. God is able to do what no human being can do, accomplish the salvation that we so desperately need. And friends, the good news is not only that God is able to accomplish this salvation, but that God has actually accomplished that salvation for us. He sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ to live the perfect life of obedience to every single one of the laws that we should have kept but have broken. And then to lay down his life and die in our place, suffering for us so that we could be saved. Jesus went to the grave, but the grave couldn't hold the perfect son of God. He bounced up. He sprang up on the third day, showing that his sacrifice for all of our sins was sufficient. And now the risen King Jesus, having ascended to his heavenly Father in glory, calls all of us to do as he called the rich young man to do. Turn from our sins. Turn from everything keeping us away and follow him. Forsake all else and cling to him. Friend, have you done that? Today is the day. Don't walk away from Jesus like the rich young man, still with all your stuff intact, but saddened and lost without the Lord. Follow him and know the cost of it. He, he must have priority in your life. Everything else must be backgrounded. We see that highlighted even in the last few verses of this passage. After Jesus' words, Peter blurts out in normal Peter-like fashion in verse 27, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? That is, we, unlike the young man, haven't clung to our stuff, but to you. We've left a lot of stuff behind. Is there anything in store for us? Now, it's easy for us to criticize old Peter here with all his questions again. But if we stepped off our religious high horse 
A religion that sometimes we must admit cares too much about formalities, about proper speech, about just silently trusting Jesus without talking to him honestly, then we'd be asking these same kinds of questions. You see, because Peter is on the inside. He's one of Jesus' disciples. Where the rich young man was told to follow Jesus but turned away sorrowful, Peter has actually followed him. And he talks here honestly about the cost involved for him and the rest of the disciples. We've left everything and followed you. And he's not exaggerating. I mean, we read back in chapter 4, he and his brother Andrew left their jobs and followed Jesus. James and his brother John left their jobs and their father, their family, probably other relationships as well, and they followed Jesus. Matthew left his job, a good-paying job as a tax collector to follow Jesus. And they are not unique. Family, following God always involves leaving people or things behind. Abraham left his homeland and kindred to follow the call of God. Moses left the pleasures and treasures of Egypt to follow the plan of God. Ruth left the familiarities of Moab and the worship of its gods to follow her mother-in-law Naomi and, more importantly, her mother-in-law's God. Read some of the missionary stories of George Lyle or Adoniram Judson or Helen Rosevere or Lottie Moon of Christians leaving everything to follow the Lord. Family, read your own life. Many of you have left or lost family, friends, jobs, potential earnings to follow Jesus. You've told boyfriends or girlfriends you got to go away. You've forfeited dreams of having certain careers or living in nicer neighborhoods to serve Jesus in this community. You've left the respect and esteem of colleagues and classmates behind because of your faith in Jesus. You can relate to Peter's plea something here, but we've left everything to follow you. And you might be asking with him, is it worth it? What will we have? Anything? Well, friends, Jesus does not disappoint. Notice he doesn't correct Peter or scold him. He accepts the reality that those who follow him, whoever they are and wherever they are, they suffer some loss. That's real. It's part of being a disciple of Christ. Jesus acknowledges that. But what he also does is promise certain privileges, rewards that will be ours at the end of this age and into another one. Rewards are coming, and Jesus wants us to know about them. He says in verse 28, oh, Peter, in, in the new world, oh, oh saints, that, that's good news, that there is another world, a new world. That's good news because this world is not where it's at. Some of us are dealing with some pain in our bodies and some pain in our marriages and some hardships in our families and some suffering in our communities and some sin in our hearts. But thank the Lord that this is not all that there is. There's another world coming, something to look forward to for the people of God. The exact wording here for this new world is regeneration. It's the same word we read in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, that, that God has regenerated our hearts. He's made them new again. Well, the same thing that the Lord has done in our hearts, he's going to do in the world. 
there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be a new body that we're given to live in this new heavens and new earth. And there's going to be a new experience where there's going to be no more sin and no more pain and no more death and no more suffering. Where everything you left behind or lacked here, you will gain there. It'll be all gain and gain and gain and gain. It'll be houses a hundredfold and families a hundredfold. And there's going to be the Lord Jesus there sitting on his throne, extending his perfect rule over his people for eternity. In other words, forsaking what seems sweet in this life to follow Jesus will lead to a far sweeter life to come. Eternal life in the presence of Jesus with far greater joys than we could ever imagine. But it only happens if we cling to him now. How can you have the the life you truly need, you truly desire? What can you do to have eternal life? It's simple, but it's hard. Follow Jesus. Give up yourself to him. Give up everything if need be for him. He's worth it. And he will not disappoint. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us not to trust in this world's riches. Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us that there is a greater future for your people and is found only in your son. So Lord, open our eyes to treasure what's truly treasurable, to value what's truly valuable. Help us to cling to Jesus Christ as our only hope for eternal life forever. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.